Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, but not good night yet as you're with me, Paul, your show host at large and the always extraordinary gentleman Andy Lever. In the last episode, I asked Andy about his superpower. It was managing people and deciphering the matrix code, otherwise known as ZAT assembler and hexadecimal without looking at the mnemonics. So I hope you're not looking at the mnemonics as you're analyzing me today. <laughs> Because, guys, you can see me while we're recording this. In other words, I've let you brag a little bit. You were very humble, Andy, don't worry. So let's go for one question today that actually needs a little bit of humility. And it's one that we always learn a lot from. Tell me and tell us about a deal you lost and maybe what you've learned about it. Oh, that's a <laughs> good question. Yeah. And I think actually in the previous episode, someone brought that up as a good interview question. Yeah, I think it was Jennifer Burrs who talked to that. Yeah. So everyone's lost a deal. Okay. People who say they haven't lost a deal are not being truthful with themselves or with you. The one that comes to mind is when I was setting up Europe for a particular company, I won't name them for now, but we wanted to get that first marquee lighthouse customer. And it's really important, that first customer. They're the one that really set the tone, help you kind of figure out how you get this delivered, how you get value together. And I think during the negotiation, it became quite apparent that the commercials may work, but our cultures didn't work together. Yeah. And there was a very awkward conversation where we sat down and said, I don't know if we're going to work very well together. And we actually both amicably said, let's not do this deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we walked away. Now, to me, that was crushing because I spent a long time nurturing this and spending time trying to get this deal together. But yeah, we We parted ways, and I often look back and think, was there another way to do it? But in the end, our launch customer ended up being a really good fit for us and a great advocate and a great reference with a great story. So, you know, it's the right thing to do. But in the moment, those things are always painful. Very, very painful. Crushing. Yeah, I can mm. understand that. So thank you for that humility, but you're always humble, as I said. So now, to use a phrase that Stephen, the previous host, would use when he was co-hosting with me, let's just jump straight in. So who is your hero of the day today? Well, we are very fortunate to be joined by Jonathan Gill, Jono, as he uh, likes to be known by. He's got a great history, and I'm glad Jonathan's come on because Jonathan, I think, has traveled a path that's quite interesting as a very commercial, sales-focused individual. He's now in a CEO position, and uh, that's what I'd love to kind of explore with him a little bit, kind of his experiences, how he's grown. He's got a great background. If I was to cherry-pick some names, IBM, CA, Vericode, RSA, Talent, and he's now CEO of Panacea, great company in the cyberspace, who I've got to know as part of the Notion family. And I think I'd love to kind of talk to him and ask him some questions around how it all led to this and kind of what he's learned along the way and a little bit of the Panacea story. So, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. Great for you to be on. And just to kind of kick us off, I'm always interested because people's career stories are always fascinating. So you've got, you've got all these stepping stones that lead you to where you are now. How much of that was accident? How much was design? How much did you set this path up from kind of early, early days? Yeah, I think it's first worth saying that I feel very lucky doing what I do. And I've loved every job I've had. I think if I go back to really university, I did a placement year. So year three at university, uh, I went back home and did four jobs. And one of them was in a local hospital, day case, doing a project for them. 
Then I'd go home in the evenings, uh, I'd eat, I'd get out of the house in 30 minutes, I'd get into town and work for the local newspaper. And we'd go door to door selling the delivery service of the newspaper. So I learned how important predictable revenue was to organization <laughs> and commission sales at a young age. And then on the weekends, I'd go back to the same hospital I worked in during the week. And this time I worked for the company that cleaned the hospital. So I'd clean the wards and uh, clean the theater. And then when I couldn't do my placement year job during the holidays, I worked in a factory assembly line and the Christmas cards would come in from one factory and the envelopes would come in from another and we put them together in a box or little polystyrene trays that you buy meat in from the supermarket. And the little tray comes from one factory, but the polystyrene absorbent pad comes from another and we glued it on and then it went off somewhere else to be processed. So doing these four jobs, it was really the newspaper delivery service that resonated with me because I was a shy introvert kid. And here I learned about persuading people and business models and objection handling. And then at university, going back into that final year, I had, I would say, two life-changing events. I met my wife, Nicola. I've been married for 23 years. In my final year, and my friends told me I was crazy to be distracted from doing my exams. They were right. I was crazy about her and still am. And by the way, I married out of my league and she still hasn't realized, so I'm still getting away with that. Uh, but the other thing I learned about was this world of personal development and learning from people who've walked ahead of you on the road. People like Brian Tracy, Earl Nightingale, Dale Carnegie, Tony Robbins, Stephen Covey. And I discovered this opportunity to take power of your future with expectation setting and goal setting. So I decided to try the world of sales and I applied for tens and tens and probably hundreds of jobs in newspaper adverts. My friends were down the pub. They were taking the mickey out of me because I was at home writing these letters because you used to have to write a letter and put a stamp on it back in those days. But I got my first job, a company called Wick Hill, and it was inside sales. And I was looking after distributors and I absolutely loved it. And then they promoted me into a field sales and I got a company car. And then one of my customers was Integralis, who then went on to become Articon Integralis and is now NTT. And they hired me to be a field salesperson, promoted me to be a sales manager. And at 24, 25, I was managing a team of 14 people, really, really loving the, the people management and the selling and making customers into heroes and promising and keeping promises. I just loved the power of the value that we could bring. But then I left the reseller to go and join a vendor and I gave up my management role to get better at what I was doing, to sharpen my skills as a seller. And to cut to the chase, over the last 26 years, I think I've had 13 jobs in nine companies, and eight of those jobs have been different. So this today, I'm four months in now to my first CEO role. This is the eighth time I've done a job for the first time. It's been almost always cybersecurity. It wasn't called cybersecurity then. And data integration. And Panacea beautifully blends those two things together because we bring a data science, data integration solution to a cybersecurity use case. They've almost all been in the UK, apart from when we lived in Boston for a while when I was at Veracode. And we'll get to Panacea in a minute, but just to kind of break that out, and that fascinating story, and by the way, I share your pain of marrying someone that hasn't yet realized that they probably could have done a bit better. So I'm sure my wife thinks that every day. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Individual contributor then, you got to a management position quite early. I didn't realize that you'd done it so early in your career. How did 
this mix of art and science in sales that we talk about, who was the person that invested in you? How did you get your skills versus, you know, the natural skills you had as art of I can deal with people and I can do selling versus the science of this needs to be a predictable business that I'm in where I can actually make decisions and predict forward outcomes. Yeah. Maybe not answering your question, but the bigger thing for me was as I read about all of these authors who had walked down the road ahead, and many of them have interviewed lots and lots of people about how they were successful. I learned that actually I'm the only person responsible for my personal growth and development and that my future was in my hands and I was steering the boat. You know, I was, I was driving the bus and that I was entirely responsible for what happened to me. And I remember a friend of mine saying, if you don't like what you see in the social mirror, don't blame the mirror. Yeah. It's down to you. You're responsible. You're accountable. And that, I think, is both terrifying and empowering. Terrifying because it means you have to take responsibility. There's nobody else to blame. It's down to you. So if you fail, you just got to look at yourself and see what you can learn, pick yourself up and, and move on. But also empowering because it's down to you to define your own outcomes. Your decisions, thoughts, goals, dreams, both conscious and unconscious, determine where you get to. And to me, that was liberating because no longer did I feel the need to impress or be invested in how effective I was today. It was all about what I could learn today so I could be more effective tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I've been blessed by a lot of people on my journey who've helped me learn. But I guess it's within the frame that it's down to me to learn from them and not for them to teach me. It's my responsibility to go get it. And if I go back to my grandfather, who was a carpenter, I learned to kind of measure twice and cut once. That was an important theme in carpentry and I think in life and decision making. Uh, my mum was a nurse, and I think from both my grandfather in particular and my mum, I learned about the importance of values, and that's had a lasting impact on me personally and professionally. And then I've been blessed with some people who've placed a bet on me and invested in me and taught me probably the most, and it's the people I've worked for. I remember when Simon Atfield hired me into Wick Hill in that first sales role, super smart guy and a strategist. So I learned about strategic selling from somebody who was a master at it. I was then hired by Paul Godden at Integralis, who's still a really good friend of mine, wonderful leader of people, great people person. And these people challenged me. They gave me feedback. They questioned me on what I was doing and whether my behavior was getting the results I wanted. And they gave me ideas about how I could do things differently. I remember when I joined Arcot, uh, Ram Varadarajan, a serial entrepreneur. He was the CEO, super smart, infectious energy and persuasiveness, always on, always on. And as a mentor, uh, Bob Brennan, who ran Iron Mountain and then was the CEO of Little Overcode at the time. It's now uh, worth a billion dollars as a company, a $250 million revenue company. But at the time I joined, I think it was around $30 million, and he was CEO. And one of the reasons I moved to the US was to be mentored by Bob, a great human being and a great leader of people and a friend and a mentor still. And one more person comes to mind, Susan, who is a coach and a friend and a gifted teacher knows more about human behavior than anybody else I've ever met. And I've worked with Susan for years to turn the lights on to why people do what they do, why we behave in the way we do. There's an even longer list of people I've worked alongside and who've worked for me that I've learned from over the years. But as you ask me the question and I think about the answer, I just realize how blessed I am to have worked with some amazing people, incredible people who've given me gifts that I've learned along the way and different things from each person. And you put those together and you can't become the superset of all the people you've worked with. But if you can gather, like an arcade game where you, you, know, you pick up tokens along the way, if you can gather those skills and apply them, 
And I think early in my career, that's what I was interested in doing. I think at the point in my career now, and probably going back the last five or 10 years, I felt a different compulsion, which is to give back and teach other people the things I've learned along the way. But at this time, I was busy collecting and I was driving sales success and personal achievement. And now those skills and tools and learnings that really helped me become successful at selling and then a successful leader, they're actually the same skills. Well, I was going to scratch on that a little bit because in this podcast series, we've been fortunate to have people who have just said, I want to be the best individual contributor salesperson I can be. And they've talked through their skills and they've had the chance to go lead teams. And they said, no, that's not what motivates me. I just want to be the best I possibly can. And then we've had other people come on who are very much talked about how to build a sales team and how to manage a sales team and, and how to get the best out of a sales team and also how to motivate a sales team when often things don't always go perfect. So how do you do that? And you seem to have, at a, quite an early age, got into a, a leadership position and then gone into larger leadership positions, cross-functional as well, I should imagine, but beyond sales, and now into a CEO role. That path, is that what, the way you always thought it would go? Did you want to end up? in the CEO spot at the end of this? I think I did. I think the path I expected, though, was different. I remember sitting next to Steve, who, in the first role I had at Wick Hill, said to me, within a few months of being there, you're going to be a CEO. And I was like, okay, you know, you're just pulling my leg, why? And I do think that early in my career, I actually thought I'd do my own thing, but never outside of opening up a reseller. You know, Integralis NTT was a great model for doing that. Outside of doing that, I just didn't have the inventive idea myself. But it's interesting what you say about different people. A guy called David McClelland did some great work on motives. And all humans have three motives to a one degree or another. A motive for achievement, getting stuff done, outperforming other people. A motive for affiliation, warm, friendly relationships. And a motive for power. And a healthy power motive in a leader is influence and doing work through others. And as I got to understand that work on motives, I understand why some people want to continue being an individual contributor and some people become a leader. And I think we're driven by our motives. They're like psychological needs in the same way we have physical needs for food and water. And if you are driven by achievement, you're probably going to spend more time being an individual contributor because you can fill your bucket and you can meet your needs every day. And I have a really high achievement need. I get out in the morning, I do my exercise, I'll bike, ride, I'll run, I'll work in the gym. I'll fill my achievement needs by doing things in work and outside of work. But my influence need is really high. I, mm. I get a buzz. I fill my bucket by influencing and affecting change through others and helping people become the best version of themselves. If you're more on the achievement side and less on the, on the power and the influence, you can meet your needs by doing your own thing. And hey, you've got more people to manage and you're in control of your life. And that's great. So I think we tend to respond to those motives and psychological needs. But I would, I would paint selling, which is really about problem solving and people and finding the root cause and seeking clarity in why someone's got a problem and understanding that and asking why and why it's important and why it's important now and who it's important to and seeking that clarity and then understanding if you can bring some value to solve that problem and then seeking clarity around that and mapping those two things together is selling. But isn't that just problem solving, which is what you do in leadership all the time? You find the root cause of a problem. You look for clarity, why it's happening. Is it important? Do I need to find out why that really happened so I can stop it happening again? How do we learn lessons? And then how do you find a solution and how do you anticipate failure? In the same way you might anticipate risk with assigning a deal, what might go wrong? 
if you're implementing a change, an organizational change, structural change, a change program, technology change, if you're introducing leadership behaviors, if you're introducing a sales methodology into a sales team or go-to-market strategy, what might go wrong? Where do people struggle? What's the resistance to change? To me, the selling and the leading, actually, the more I read about becoming a CEO and becoming a leader, the better I got at selling. That would undoubtedly be true, I hope, as you step up into that leadership position. I'm curious, as you talk as well, you've spent a lot of time in the cyberspace. I think it's fair to say you've probably seen it evolve over the years and change. How do you see that market now? Because to me, it looks like a a big market, can often be viewed as a noisy market. What are the kind of big themes, trends and changes you've seen over time being immersed in it? Well, we call it cybersecurity now. But when I was at Integralis, I remember when somebody came to see me at a, at a trade show and asked me about Firewall 1. I didn't know what Firewall was. This was not a thing yet. Checkpoint had invented Firewall 1, and we became Integralis, really launched that into the UK market. But you didn't need all your fingers to count the number of security products we sold. So it's gone from being security, relatively simple, to being almost overwhelmingly complex. I think the cost of cyber breaches was $6 trillion either last year or this year, huge, huge numbers, the damage done. The security function was this tiny little thing hidden somewhere in IT. Buying security products was like buying air conditioning and toilets. You know, it just wasn't important to the organization. It was just stuff you had to buy to run the place. Whereas now the CISO is often the most scrutinized person in the company. And companies spend, what, in financial services, probably 10% of their IT budget on security. And it's gone from being a really small number of vendors, like you knew the names of all of them, through to thousands and thousands of products. And from a customer point of view, I remember when the, you know, we'd have diagrams of fortresses and locks and the threat surface was servers and laptops. And there was a boundary and it was all internal and controllable. And now it's boundaryless and IoT and cloud and outside of the organization. There is no, obviously, physical boundary anymore. And I remember when attacks were, everything was about avoiding a breach, stopping it happening. Now there's a minimize the damage anticipate it, accept it. Most organizations, I don't think, are trying to entirely prevent a a breach. They're not entirely trying to prevent a breach. They are accepting that it might happen if it does minimize the damage, minimize the loss, recover quickly. And it's gone from being, I don't know, the business being disinterested almost in security to being business critical. And in some organizations, a potential extinction event if there is a severe breach. Because if you disrupt a service in a business that's cash flow intensive and they can't trade, That business might not exist in a low-margin, high-volume operation. And my daughter is just doing A-levels, and there was a a careers day, and somebody came on from the UK government and from one of the big banks in the UK to talk to the kids. And they really made my my daughter understand that the consequence of cybersecurity is not just loss of money or personally identifiable information. It's the cybercrime and the fraud that is fueling political blackmail and funding guns and drugs and people trafficking. So it's not just losing intellectual property and data. Um, Some of the bad stuff that happens in the world is partly funded by cybersecurity crime and breaches. So that is just a completely different world. And when I joined security, who knew that that's where this thing was going? And it's great being part of the industry, but you almost regret that you need one because it's such a harmful thing when organizations are attacked successfully and I enjoy playing my part on this side of the fence to try and minimize that damage and, and help customers be successful. You made a point, what's the word you use? Noise, noisy. Yes. Yeah. It almost feels to me that for each vendor to be heard above the noise, almost like with social media, you have to 
compete in a way that it becomes more and more claims and fastest, the first, the best, the quickest, the first to market, the market leader. And if you go to a trade show and you look at the words on all the stands at the trade show, they're all very similar. And it's hard, I think, for customers to get through the blah, blah, blah of everyone sounds the same with so many vendors. And what I, I suppose I get frustrated with it, if I'm being honest, is just the laziness sometimes when vendors describe the world is insecure. I've got a product, you should buy it. Linking those cause and effects together in a way where they're often not linked and the customer is expected to take a leap of faith that you have the silver bullet that solves all the problems of cybersecurity. So I think as vendors, we've got a responsibility to be very precise about the problems we solve, what we can and what we can't do, and to be clear with customers and set them up for success. And it's one of the reasons I love the move from on-prem to SaaS. I love being a promise maker and a promise keeper. And when you're on a subscription service, you've got to keep your promises. I love that. I love that. It's not the customer paying up front based on the promise somebody made and then that salesperson is never seen again. I love the ongoing accountability. And I feel as though those values I talked about earlier have really helped me build trust relationships with customers over the years and are even more suited to the world we live in now. And I enjoy more scrutiny. I love it. More accountability, more scrutiny. Keep your promises. And then you can differentiate, if you do keep your promises, from the people who maybe are more clumsy with their promises. So I like that part of it. The final thought I'll just make on that, Andy, is that the three trends I've really noticed is the industry is so big and organizations are overwhelmed by the number of security tools and all the data that these tools produce. You see, you see reports that there are on average 50, some say over 100 tools in an organization, and they're adding at least five tools every single year. There's this conveyor belt of new technology coming through, and people can't keep up to speed with it, and these tools don't talk to each other. They're all different ways of looking at the world. Some look at IP address, some look at applications, some look at domain names. And then there's a shortage of skills. I think there are 4 million open positions in cybersecurity. So you've got a shortage of people being overwhelmed by all these tools. And you do so in a glass house because the stakes get higher and higher every single day. And there's this spiral of you buy more tools, people make more mistakes, there's more errors, there's more breaches, there's more regulatory scrutiny, there's more audit scrutiny, there's more internal risk and compliance scrutiny. So you buy more tools. And then people are more overwhelmed and you make more mistakes. So there's this really difficult position I think many organizations find themselves in, struggling with the overwhelming nature of the cybersecurity problem, but also the complexity of the, of the solutions. It's one of the reasons I joined Panacea. We've got a way of helping take care of, of some of that. And I've seen that need grow in the 20 odd years I've been doing this. How do you, how do you see it? What's your view of the, the changes in the market? Well, it's funny, as you were talking, actually, out of the corner of my eye, and I genuinely, I forgot this was here, was my RSA badge. I'm just holding this up on the podcast recording, which was probably one of the last long haul flights I took, which was February 2020, San Francisco at the Moscone there. And it was the strangest conference because it's just as the pandemic was starting. So guess what? There was no one on the floor. So there was hundreds and hundreds of stands in this huge convention center with no people on the floor. So all the conversations happen elsewhere. And that, to me, I, I think was one of the strangest conferences I've ever been to. But what happened then was that you could just see the vast number, if you, if you look down onto the floor, yeah. the vast number of vendors. And you're exactly right. You know, it's who is creating a problem, not creating a problem, but kind of magnifying a problem to then create a solution versus people that... I've really, really thought this through in terms of the value proposition that they're providing back. 
And I think to me, I look at cybersecurity now and I can very clearly see the value propositions of the ones that I see as breakout companies. And I also feel that fed back from the market in terms of customers saying this is demonstrable value that I'm getting rather than, hey, I ticked that box. Thank goodness I got that in the door because it, it fills that part of the jigsaw that I needed to fill. You know, So to me, cyber, I think right now there's a, a couple of companies in each part of that stack protecting all the way from the IP, all, addressing the data rooms all the way upwards that stand out. But there's a lot of noise there as well, for sure. So I was going to ask you now at Panacea. Panacea have been on a, you know, they, they've had a very technical founding team. They've put a lot of work into the product. In this last year, they've, they've had some nice growth as well. So what do you do as a new CEO? You land, you've got your background that we've just explored and kind of things that you've done. How did you set out your stall? How did you approach this? I'm curious. Let me just share a feeling, first of all. I shared this with the team, actually, I think at the first All Hands we did. I feel as though my career to date has just been practicing for this whether that's go-to-market and scaling organizations or leading people, I feel as though I've come to a junction where those two things have come together. And I looked for an organization where there was a Jonathan-sized hole in the organization to see whether I can bring some value. Does it suit what I do? And the first thing really was to understand what we did and how we served our customers. So I spoke with almost all of our customers as quickly as I possibly could. I wanted to see through their eyes and I wanted to understand, we've got a website and it tells you on there what we do and there's continuous controls, monitoring, and we talk about the metrics and some of the things we do. And then when I spoke with customers, they were describing this paradigm they lived in, which didn't match the way we talked about our product as a product company. And it was a little bit like, you've got kids, I've got kids. And I remember when I used to play golf and I was married but didn't have kids. And I'd go out and play golf and I used to enjoy it. And we might play once or twice in the weekend with your mates and go for a drink afterwards. And then your friends start to have kids and they start saying, you should do it. And you think, yeah, they're, they're noisy, they're smelly, they're expensive. I have to give up on my social life. I don't get to play golf. Anybody who's got kids doesn't miss golf so much. The benefits of having kids are impossible to articulate. And I felt it was a bit like that. Here's a load of prospects who we talk to who don't have kids. And here are our customers who've got kids and we're trying to describe what the world is like with kids on a website and in PDFs and things. And then, so I set about trying to do the best I could to synthesize their point of view down to explain what it was like having kids as best you can to people who haven't got kids. I'm not sure if that works as a that works. description. Yeah. Okay. And I'm curious. So I wanted clarity to understand what their problem was and what the world was like when they were living in that problem statement, the before, if you like, compared with the after, to try and really understand why it was important and, and who suffered and what did it mean and what did it lead to. And some of those things are business case things you can put into a spreadsheet around cost. And some of them are just around having credibility and having trust and collaboration with people, things that are difficult to quantify, but you could feel the emotional benefit coming out. So the first thing I did was speak to customers and use my favorite two questions, really, which are why and so what. I think I've learned those from my kids. <laughs> some of the, I should have credited them earlier in being some of my best, best teachers, my two children. Why is it important? What does it matter? And there's a company called CVI, Corporate Visions, Inc. They've done some great work around behavioral science, around messaging, and why people don't buy, and understanding that from a behavioral point of view, and what, if we go back to the industry comment we made earlier, a lot of vendors talk about what they do. 
and it's overwhelming about all the features and the capabilities they've got. There was a piece of work done by two economists. I think they got a Nobel Peace Prize for economics called Prospect Theory or Loss Aversion Theory. Amos Tversky and Dan Kenneman, I think were their names. And it's such a simple concept, which is we associate more perceived value with something we lose compared with something of the same value that we gain. So if you've got a thousand pounds and you've already got it and you've got ideas about what you might do with it and there's a risk of you losing that, you'll behave differently to defend the thousand pounds that you've already got versus somebody giving you a thousand pounds that you don't have and you lived without yesterday and the day before and life was okay because you're not attached to it. Even though it's the same monetary value, you associate two to three times more value personally with something that you've already got that you might lose. And therefore, when I ask customers about the world they lived in before, I was asking them, why did you change? What were you risking losing? Because the benefits are great, but you, you didn't have the benefits on Monday, so you can live without them on Tuesday. There has to be something you're going to lose. It might, you might fail an audit, or there's some reason behind why you're making a change beyond just the benefits, often. And vendors tend to talk about the benefits. But if you understand what they might be losing, as well as what they might be gaining, you've now got the one times on what they might gain and the two to three times on what they might lose. And you can contrast between those two spots. And I want to be very clear here that this is about advisory and consultancy and learning from customers who've done it and why they've done it and sharing that knowledge with people who are further behind on the road in the same way that I read about leaders and Stephen Covey taught me about a lot of lessons in his seven habits. He taught me things that I didn't know and made me aware of things I might struggle with if I didn't learn those lessons. It's the same thing. This is not FUD. Right? This is not, you should be scared of this, you should be scared of that. This is a data-driven argument with customer testimonials to be able to explain to people who are in this side in the before how life might change and why these other customers have moved. And then you describe the benefits as well. So we spent quite a bit of time synthesizing these messages from customer and learning their observations and asking them, what value did you get that you expected? What value did you expect that you didn't get? That you thought that maybe we promised you or we said you would get or you assumed or it was implied. So we can learn from that and either find a way to give it to you or make sure that we refine the expectations we set. And what did you find that you never even expected? And that last question often reveals things to a vendor that they have no idea customers learn about. And I think this word credibility and our customers talking about having a low resting heart rate and the ability to talk in the language of the business around security metrics and collaborate in a way they couldn't before. Yes, we know the product can do that, but what oozed out of them was just that human benefit of cybersecurity teams and CISOs being able to have a really credible conversation with the business in the language of the business. That brought an extra dimension to that beyond the feature itself because it gave them a seat at the table. It gave them the ability to contribute to the speed of change of the business and be part of that, not just the team that spends all the money and is at risk of a breach and can't explain what they do. Now they can explain what they do. They can justify changes. They can show progress over time. They can have one set of data that everybody in the organization can use who needs to access security data and the regulator and the audit, and they can give those regulatory attestations with confidence and we knew the technology could do that, but just the level of human benefit to that and the benefit they got walking around the organization with their heads high and being able to contribute to it and not just be a cost, I don't think I would have got from just understanding the product. And that's just one of many things I learned from our 
our customers. So the first thing I did was to understand that. The second thing was, I don't know whether you've seen this concept of a value wedge. If you think of three overlapping circles in a Venn diagram, so one circle represents the customer and what they need. Another overlapping circle represents a competitor. And the other overlapping circle represents you. And that competitor will do some things that the customer needs that you don't do. Where those two circles overlap and yours doesn't, that's the value wedge of that vendor. Unique value that that competitor can bring to that customer that you just don't do. And then you've got one of those as well because your circle overlaps with theirs. That doesn't overlap with the competitor. So what's your unique value wedge? And then where do they overlap? Where does the customer have a need that both the competitor and you do? And we call that the parity wedge. Right? You can do it and they can do it. Does your customer need something that only you can do? And if it doesn't, you're probably not going to be successful. So if you think what you do is important, you can try and change their mind by introducing information to them that helps them identify unappreciated, undervalued, unmet, unknown needs and consult and advise them. But if they haven't got that problem, they're not going to buy your product, and nor should they, because you don't solve the problem that they've got. This other competitor does. So then you can decide to qualify out because you understand and doing that with the customer feedback in mind, rather than us as a company, what have you invented? It was what the customers need that we've invented and what does that overlap with and what, what do we do that nobody else in the, in the world does? And that is what I would refer to as becoming one of one, that you have a message that you share with customers and you share the benefits you can bring aligned with a set of circumstances. That if, if they have those circumstances, you're a really good fit. But if you don't, you don't. And then let's decide where to spend our our time as, a, you know, as part of the sales organization on either changing their mind and influencing them and advising and consulting or accepting that it's not a fit and qualify out. But it gives you a way of finding out whether you're a fit. So they're the first two things I did. And then the, I guess the next thing is just to deliver outstanding value to those organizations who are customers and prospects and to make sure that everybody in the company understands that, yes, we're a product company, but everything we do every day needs to lead to delivering value to customers, both personally to the people who look us in the eyes and trust us, and to deliver value against their projects and make them successful in their organizations. And to do that, we need to be challenging customers. We need to agitate them. We need to disagree with them, right? We need to recognize that we're the foremost experts in the world on solving this problem with a data science approach. And I don't mean be arrogant or bullish, but I mean don't do everything they want you to do. Make sure we focus on their needs more so than their wants. And make sure we're aligned against very clear goals and success criteria, which we then hold our organization accountable to. But we also, in the calls I have with customers, for instance, I've got monthly calls with some of the CISOs who are customers going through implementations. And I tell them what our team's fed back, that we think their team can do better, where we need some help, and they tell me. And it's a non-critical, non-judgmental, non-blame conversation. It's you've got a goal. Our job is to tell you when you're tracking to the goal and what's going well and to thank the people and appreciate what they do. And when we're off track, our job is to tell you we think you're off track and have a discussion about that, but not just say yes to everything a customer asks for because we're accountable for outcomes and goals that need to be clearly defined. Usually the organizations I choose have got great intentions around customer value, but sometimes we forget that kind of we're the consultant and they're the patient, if you like. And because customers have money, they must always be right. And customers are not always right. We are accountable for their success. And I want that in the DNA of the organization and for us to do unnatural things to make them successful against the promises we've made. And if customers need to ring me at the weekend or when I'm on holiday to talk about a problem, I'm available to them because we are promise keepers. But that's not the same as doing everything that their team on the ground might ask you to do. 
which might actually distract from the goals that they, that they have. And I want to make sure we're accountable against clear goals and success criteria. And that requires a level of discipline to really, really understand what they need and why. And then we have a, we have a call as a leadership team every week with every customer on how we're doing, red, yellow, green, what's tracking, what's not, what we need to do about it, who we need to call at the customer to let them know if there's a problem, to make sure we're on track to keep those promises. So it's great having a value proposition and articulating it and making promises, but I'm holding our organization accountable to keeping those promises. I think out of all the people I've ever talked to, that value equation is probably the bit that I've heard you express the clearest and in a way that makes a lot of sense. Because to me, I feel sometimes when a customer makes a purchase from you, it's very kind of financial, hard metrics driven. And you just said it earlier, you know, you asked them, what did you get that you didn't expect? Often that becomes the stickiest part of the proposition with them in terms of things that they didn't expect and wasn't super quantifiable earlier on in the purchasing decision when they were working with you. Just to kind of build on this a little bit as well, continuous controls monitoring, CCM, Gartner mentioned it in maybe a year ago as as one of the first new cyber categories. Is that still resonating? How do you find that as a category is developing? Is it something in the market that makes you stand out and make you look different? Yes, and it's a testament to the ingenuity, the hard work, the highly skilled team, and the culture that has been instilled at Panacea. And it's really an honor to be able to join Panacea and have the opportunity to help take the company and this incredible group of people to the next level. And the team has come so far. Uh, As you mentioned, Andy, this new category, CCM, Continuous Controls Monitoring, recognized for the first time in Gartner's risk management hype cycle in just 2020. And the technology is solving one of the biggest challenges in cybersecurity today. Enterprises simply do not know if their security tools and their security controls are providing full protection at any moment in time. Preventable breaches that happen because tools and controls you have simply aren't covering all your assets or are not working in the way that you think they are. And Panacea, we give you a single view of the truth across all of your security estate with that business context and that organizational context to give automated, prioritized, data-driven insights through what really is a decision support platform to help you make the most of all the people and all the tools that you have. Fascinating. But what we've done is synthesize down the views of the many, many customers I've spoken with for them to describe the world before, which is overwhelmed by tools and fragmented data and silos of tools that simply don't talk to each other with a shortage of people who spend a third to half of their time reporting on these tools and producing data they don't believe in and it's out of date and they cross their fingers when they give it to the regulator and doing so in this glass house, right? More and more scrutiny internally, externally, and there's more breaches, there's more scrutiny. If you just look at GDPR, for instance, there were 39% higher fines last year than the year before in one regulation. I think there were 331 breach notifications per day just for GDPR. I think as a result of the pandemic, the FBI reported, a, I think it's 4,000 incidents a day and a 400% increase after the pandemic compared with before. There's just so much scrutiny. So you look at that and think, this is now a data science problem. And what do we do? We provide a complete platform to get all of those security tools, business tools, IT tools into one place, continuously, automatically updated. We feed in business context and we give the CISO and his team or her team a platform of trusted data for the first time. They now know how many assets they are, they've got, they know the controls against those assets. So this continuous controls monitoring is accurate 
but there's a dimension to it. Like saying, I had a nice holiday, there's a dimension to it that our customers bring to life around there's nothing else that can give them complete visibility of everything they've got. We find there are assets that they never knew they had, that there are not controls against, that they thought they had controls against, and they're reporting 100% and they just don't know because the security tools, they don't know where they're not. They only know where they are. They don't know what servers are sitting over here that no one's told the tool about. And the beauty of Panacea's approach to continuous controls monitoring is, imagine there is a crime or a car crash or something happens and you've got witnesses. Each witness is probably unreliable. But if you can interview every human being who was there, if you can get the footage from every CCTV camera on the street, if you can get the private cameras from the organization who've got inside and outside cameras pointing at the same area, if you can get mobile phone coverage, if you can get dash cam coverage, if there's a satellite going overhead that you can see the images for, if you can piece all of that together and dedupe it, we call it entity resolution, you get a really good view of what happened. But any one source might be black and white or grainy or no sound or unreliable or they thought they saw this or they were distracted. But when you piece all that together, if you can get the feeds from tens and tens and tens of tools, you get a really good view. And customers say, I've got my CMDB. I thought that was accurate. It wasn't. This is the only source of truth data I've got. It's my golden source. So continuous controls monitoring is what we do. But doing that on a complete platform that's continuously automatically updated with no human involvement, with line of business context so that you can show risk and control status by line of business, by business process, by crown jewels, by geographical entity. This is for the Unix team. This is for the Windows team. When you can carve it up and present it in the line of business and the line of ownership, the CISO gets a lot more work done around the organization for which they are responsible and accountable, but actually they can't do the day-to-day work. It's got to be done by some people in line of business or elsewhere in IT. So yes, it's continuous controls monitoring, but the world that our customers describe when they live there is just a very, very different place to be. And they said, nobody came second in the RFP. I've gone from art to science. I've gone from tribal knowledge to data-driven. It's one of the best investments I've ever made. It's my pulse. We use it every day. It's what the team uses. They just describe a world of confidence around security data that I've never seen, except back in the days when you didn't need all your fingers to count the number of security tools that you had. (laughs) Very good. This is fascinating, and I really appreciate you sharing a lot of this. As we're coming up kind of on time, just a couple of quick questions. One of them was, I know Panacea at the very start of this pandemic went pretty much fully remote, from what I can tell. Yep. How's that worked out in terms of an organization? I know you're going to continue. We ask our team regularly what's working for them. And it's interesting, I left my previous company last March, and I took nine months off last year. And I left when people had offices and we jumped on airplanes. And now I pretty much sit and stand in front of a screen all day on video calls. There's a big change. I think the team are enjoying the autonomy and the freedom and the homework balance that comes from that. I'm enjoying that. I spent most of my life on an airplane. In my last role, I was in Paris two to three days a week, almost every week. I'd get picked up by Glenn at 4.30 in the morning and driven to the airport on a Monday and come back home on Wednesday. So there's something that's quite nice about being at home and not traveling all the time. I think like all of us, we miss that human interaction. I came off my leadership team meeting directly before this and we're arranging when I can get to meet them for the first time. I've not met them in person yet. I've been, this is month four. There's three people in the company I've met and two of them are because I've, I hired them in from my network and they've joined recently. So I'm looking forward to that. So we, we miss the human contact, but the mood of the team at the moment is that it works remotely and everyone's got passes to offices so we can go into a, a shared office space and people can meet together. 
maybe put that money into social events, either once a year or more often, so people can meet and get together. So we're keeping an eye on it, and we'll follow the mood. And if the mood changes, we might open the office back up. But at the moment, we're not planning to do that. So we'll keep an eye on that and just see where it goes. I'm with you on the flying, by the way. I think my first business flight was in the early 90s, and there's not been a single year up until now that I've not done many, many flights. So yeah. I'm with you. It's actually quite nice in a way, not having to travel. So just to finish as well then, so who, what is out there, people, companies, ideas, trends that have kind of caught your eye that you're looking at and inspired by or admire out there in industry? I always like to finish so that people can kind of give their view of what they think are up and coming areas or things to watch or things that set standard for you that you think, hey, I'd, I'd like to us or me to be as good as that. That's a great question. I'm going to answer that in the same place I started. And the bias I declared at the beginning was I'm just fascinated about people and why we do what we do and human behavior. And actually, by working remotely, there's a higher burden of responsibility to understand people because you don't get as much information when you're communicating. So anybody who explains the world, I love models and concepts and circles and triangles and grids that put things into place. And it was back at university, it was Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, where he's got the circle of influence and the circle of concern. That was just a powerful structure for me, as well as his concept of urgent and important, that Eisenhower matrix is how you can structure your time and working on the big rocks. I like people who explain the amorphous world we live in, in structure and pattern and models. Stephen Covey's idea of win-win, really easy thing to say, yeah, yeah, let's talk win-win. My experience is there's a lot of win-lose in the world. Win-win means I want you to be successful and I want to be successful. You combine that with I'm okay, you're okay, that model that came out of transaction analysis with I'm going to treat you as though you are okay and that I'm okay. And if you behave in a way that is odd, I'm going to think, why is that? Because it's not usually the person. It's usually the environment. It's usually the context. It's usually something's happened. By understanding people's behavior and why we behave well and why we don't and when we're in distress and recognizing when people are in distress and they're not in their thinking brain, they're in their emotional amygdala brain, that's where they're living and therefore not thinking clearly, is to help them get back into a place where they can be their best. So I think the combination of what we've talked about around personal development and growth and people explaining the world and the remote world we live in, as a leader and as a, you know, a husband and as a, as a parent, to have the responsibility when people are not in a good place to help them become the best versions of themselves. And therefore, the more you can understand about why people do things, and it's just easy and lazy to blame and judge and criticize. But then you're in a, I'm okay, you're not okay. Because I'm saying, hey, it's your fault. And it was a comedian who said, anybody who drives faster than me is a maniac. Anybody who drives slower than me is an idiot. Because we think we're always right. So anyone to the left or the right, politically or in any part of life, must be wrong because we've got our own bias. So anybody who explains why people do what they do. I mean, John Cotter's done some great work on managing change. We had um, a World Book Day recently, 4th of March, I think it was, and we gave a book to everybody in the company, the wisest one in the room, Gilovich and Ross. Just a great explanation of behavioral science or social economics, why people do what they do. And if you understand why they do it, then you don't judge them. You say, okay, I get that. And it was put into a formula once by somebody. I think it was Susan, uh, the coach I mentioned earlier, that the behavior B of the person is a function of P, and e. The behavior is a function of the person and the environment. And it's easy to judge the person. It's often the environment or the context. And if you can understand that, you can understand why they're doing what they're doing. 
So people who explain the world in models like that, David McClellan I mentioned earlier, who's in the work around the three motives. When I interview people, I can understand what their three motives are because people broadcast it. And then you can work out if an individual contributor is going to be successful as a leader. It's a strong indicator because if you understand what their psychological needs and motives are, you can help them find the right job for them. And you can be a leader without having a high power need. It helps to be aware that you haven't got that and therefore you need to work in a way that might not be natural to you. But you can do it. But if you recognize that it's not going to be driven by your needs, it's going to be driven by a more conscious act, then you can help those people be successful. So really, I just love people who frame the world. Simon Sinek's work on the power of why and the infinite versus the finite model. I love that. It's just a way of looking at the world through a particular lens and explaining it. And Salerno did some work on change cycle, if you've ever seen that work, when people go through change and you can see what stage they're in. Me joining a company means I'm in a change cycle. The people I'm joining are in a change cycle. Different people are at different stages and it's observable. And some are overwhelmed and some are looking for clarity and some are on the other side of that circle and they're enthusiastic about it, but they're about to start another change cycle on something else. And if you can meet people where they're at and understand why, you can help them become the best versions of themselves which I think is even more relevant in a world where we're trying to do this over video calls and we don't get that, that face-to-face contact. And to bring that back to where we started, Andy, the journey to understand self and the search for self-awareness, I really believe you can become the best version of yourself and then help others become the best versions of themselves by starting with that awareness and understanding of yourself as a foundation to better understand them and help them become the best versions of themselves. Fascinating. Listen, really appreciate the time, Jono. I know you're busy. Continued success at Panacea. And thank you for talking us through that. I think there's a lot to absorb there and for people to take away, think about as well, and some experiences, some tips, and some thoughts. So again, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as a guest. And thanks for you and the Notion team for all the support now and in the past, Andy. It's uh, really appreciated. Good to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Paul. That was great. Thank you so much. Bye.